So I had planned uh, this evening to, to speak on more general topics with the idea that there would be a fair number of persons who were less familiar or acquainted with the theology and philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And um, as I look around, I see there are quite a few who are acquainted <laughs> with that. But with your permission, you don't have to give it, but I would like to suggest that I'll proceed as planned and give a, a general talk. Um, and there are some persons who are less acquainted, Paul and perhaps Frank and a few others, for that matter. So we have been discussing thus far since I've come this time we, we've been discussing the we had a very interesting discussion on the uh, from Gopal Tapani Upanishad which most of you know I'm writing a commentary on uh, about now three quarters finished with that well as much as first draft anyway <laughs> goes but we had a very interesting discussion on, on that and the significance of the Gopal Mantra led us nicely into the evening's discussion last evening, yesterday evening, about the Vastraharana Lila of Krishna's uh, uh, milk maidens, that means the stealing of the clothes of the gopis, which is a controversial and interesting uh, Lila that corresponds with this time of the year. It took place during this month. So we spoke about the significance of Krishna's identifying himself with Marga Shirsha this month in Bhagavad Gita where he says Masanam Marga Shirsha Hum of Mansayam Marga Shirsha another name for that is Agrahayana and as I mentioned that led us into that discussion we didn't finish that discussion it's um, to be continued tomorrow evening so we'll wax a little more esoteric tomorrow for those of you who are, who are here but um Tonight's a general lecture, which is which is good for all of us. And so, well, uh, I had uh, been a- asked to suggest a title for such a lecture, and what was the title I gave? Something about yoga of self-forgetfulness. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the yoga of self-forgetfulness. And what brings to mind is uh, first of all is the interesting conclusion of Bhagavad Gita. You may know that Bhagavad Gita has a conclusion. It was one of the things that Prabhupada was fond of emphasizing whenever he met anyone who had said that they had read the Bhagavad Gita. Prabhupada would say, oh, very nice. Do you know the conclusion? And more often than not, the response would be, I didn't know there was a conclusion. It's just a collection of poetic verses and you kind of open the book with your eyes closed and hopefully open to a verse that will have relevance and meaning. And that does work and it is a book like that too, but it does have a theme and, and a conclusion. And most of you are familiar with the f- a famous uh, concluding verse 
that as I say, the, the topic of selflessness, yoga of selflessness, first brings to mind for me, Krishna says, sarva dharman puritajja, so I think most of you know this. It means um, sarva dharman puritajja. Puritajja means to reject. And sarva means all, and dharma means, in this context, it means a religious discipline. And yoga is, in fact, a, a, a religious discipline. We like to call it a, a spiritual discipline because, in a sense, the full idea of yoga serves as a departure, if you will, from, from religion to spirituality, which are certainly related, but at the same time they can be talked about as if different. Spirituality being, what I mean by that, for example, the topic of Vedanta, the concluding portion of the Vedas and religion, the topic of the beginning portion of the Vedas, religion being a discipline in life that governs all of our human activities in such a way that they are brought into touch with divinity. And it's considered that such a life leads to spirituality, which in the full sense of the term is about realizing that it's one thing to temper or color my my human life with the tint of divinity, and it's another thing to understand that I'm not even really a human when it, at the bottom line I'm, I'm, I'm different from this body altogether. I'm not a man or woman or black or white or straight or, or gay or whatever may be, the various designations that um, we've accepted in our material life. So, experiential spirituality and religious life. Generally, religious life is thought to lead to spirituality. Some of us have come to spirituality without leading a religious life, though. (laughs) And so there are exceptions to the rule. And the principal factor in such exceptional cases, of which there are a number, are, the factor is, what? Good association, good company, sadhu sangha, association of saintly persons. They can create this type of interest and eligibility for actual uh, spiritual pursuit, even out of the unreligious and even atheistic section of, of society. And so the value of such company cannot be under, underestimated. But here, at any rate, in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says a very interesting thing in his concluding words. He says, give up all dharma, all religious discipline, we can say yoga, he says, give it up. And it's interesting because for the most part the book is, is about accepting dharma and uh, applying it systematically in your life, that kind of religious discipline that leads to actual spiritual experience. So, uh, ostensibly, on his face, he's asked us to, to give up 
religion at the end, but talked about being religious and that being a, a means to enter into spirituality throughout the book. So he must mean something else when he says that. And indeed he does. In this concluding section of the Gita, after going through so many a discussion of spirituality from many different angles, its nature, nature of approach to it, and so forth, has come to a very lofty ideal, which we could call self-forgetfulness in yoga. And to help us understand what that means, self-forgetfulness, we can look back to the other end of the spectrum, from the lofty, high, spiritual end of self-forgetfulness that love is about, we can look to the very low end of selfishness that is also all about self-forgetfulness. So sometimes the two ends of the spectrum have similarities. Prabhupada used to say that monkeys and sages have a lot in common. The sages live in the forest and uh, sometimes they're naked and and they, and they eat fruits and things that fall from the trees and so forth, and, and so do the monkeys. But while there's considerable similarity, there's a big difference between the two as well. So, as a fact, if you go far enough to the right, then you may end up going left. So, the two ends of the spectrum, the, the avadut, the mad saint, and the bag lady are similar in, <laughs> in some respects. So we can learn something about the high end of self-forgetfulness that's arrived at through yoga from the low end of self-forgetfulness that has nothing to do with yoga, that is all about selfishness and self-centeredness. And it's, so it's, it's common uh, knowledge that selfishness is, is not a good thing. Even selfish people agree with that when others are selfish in relation to them. So there are certain universal principles that everyone accepts, and this is one of them. So, when we speak about Krishna consciousness in these kind of terms, in terms of it being, for example, about moving away from selfishness, then we're not talking really about convincing anybody of anything that they don't already agree with. And truly, this is the nature of Krishna consciousness. If, if we really look deeply at it, it's, it's not a matter of dogma but it, it's a matter of uh, just looking at life and the things in life that everybody, if they sit down for a moment and are honest, they, they agree with. And then taking those conclusions to the furthest limit. That is what Krishna consciousness is. And so this is a good example. Everyone agrees on some level that selfishness is debasing, it's degrading, it's it's embarrassing, it's... It's bad. Uh, it's undesirable. But we all do it. We are all involved in it to one extent or another. And of course, texts like the Bhagavad Gita, as I say, they want to take this principle to the extreme. What does it mean to be selfish? So in a simple sense, of course, we know what it means and, and we can we can practice giving it up. And there's some pain always involved in that. We might have to eat less instead of getting the last bite and give, give it to someone else at the table. And in so many simple ways, we're confronted with the opportunity to, to see our, our selfishness and to 
move away from it. And as much as we can do that in our everyday life and everyday dealings, in a very simplistic sense, we can understand that uh, we're involved in uh, in yoga. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, he says, Nahi asanyasta sankalpo yogi bhavati kaschana. He says, one cannot uh, be a yogi without giving up selfish motivation. So we may think of yoga in different ways, but this is the heart of it. This is what it's about, moving away from selfishness. So we should all think about that and, and try to apply it in our everyday lives, in our everyday dealings, not only in the temple when we sit down, but in dealing with every, the people we meet in the course of our everyday lives, as I say. If we think of it like this, we can think this is yoga. I'm doing yoga. This would cause my, call my spiritual progress. We need very much to take our spiritual practice outside of the temple. We have to learn, at least theoretically, if we were to ever arrive at a, at a realization of this fact, theoretically we have to contemplate the reality that the object of our, our worship is universal. Krishna is not only in the temple. He's not only in the... We say he's in, he's, in the, he's in the devotee, more than he's in the temple. But he's not only in the devotee, he's in, in, in everyone. Mahabhu so everyone has a devotee. So, <laughs> then what? So, it's a fact that we have to focus our attention in a particular way in the context of yoga to realize this truth as to the universality of our object of love. But in the context of our engaging in such practices, spiritual disciplines, we have to think like this. And we have to take that practice with us wherever we go. So this is a very simple way in which we can see ourselves engaged in yoga whenever the opportunity arises in our life that we see, oh, I could sacrifice here or I could, I could enjoy. People like to say, well, enjoy. We may say it too, but uh, we should think about it. There's room for that. There's a place for that, no doubt. And that's what self-forgetfulness in yoga is really about. And we have to talk about that, I guess, to some extent too. But let us continue talking about the low end of selfishness, which is self-forgetfulness, outside of the context of yoga, that we might be better prepared to move from there in the direction of self-forgetfulness within the context of yoga. So as I say, in a general, in a simple sense, we all know what selfishness is. We all see the ugly face of that every day or every hour, may be the case, if we look for it. But Bhagavad Gita wants to take this to the extreme, this principle that, as I say, is universally acknowledged. It tells us that Selfishness is, uh, is about our very identification with the objects of the senses. When we say, for example, this is my house, this is my car, this is my book, what are we saying? Why do we like the house? Why do we care about it? Even if we don't like it, we care about it because it's mine. I have to get rid of it. I have to sell it. So, so we care about it in some way or another. We're identified with it. What's really taking place there? 
Vedanta teaches us that the reason that we care about any material object is because we're inside of it. And the symptom of our being inside of it is our caring about it and our addressing it as mine. You see, mine is an extension of me. So consciousness has the power, and we are of the nature of consciousness, to extend itself into material objects and thereby identify with, with them. Because I'm in the car by way of a projecting myself into it through identification, I care about the car. If your car gets a flat tire, it's not a big deal. Unless I've projected myself into you <laughs> and identified with you to some extent as mine to some extent and that, and so on. So the lesson in this, in one sense, is that what's important is not that object, but me, myself. But the problem here is that in such identification, I forgot myself. I identified with the object. I thought the object was important. And I wasn't able to, to deduce, to understand. The only reason I think it's important is because I've projected myself into it. What's important is me. And as much as I'm different from the objects that I extend myself into by way of identifying them as mine, I'm different from, from the very basic sense of self uh, that we call this body and uh, personality, mental, emotional uh, sense of, of self. So selfishness and, and, and self-forgetfulness in the, outside of the context of yoga in the uh, world of the Bhagavad Gita is uh, we're deeply uh, absorbed in that even when we're not selfish on an obvious level. In other words, even when we're good, kind, and, and giving people, which is laudable, and, and we should at least be that. <laughs> talking about all these things and, and uh, telling them to others and so forth, Krishna conscious theory and dogma, we should at least be that. We tend often rather to be filled with a head of, of information that we're very quick to regurgitate only so that we may increase our sense, false sense of esteem, that we know something. Even we see persons who are better than us better people, we tend to dismiss them because we have some information that they don't have. Of course, uh, we talked last night, we have a little more than just information because somebody who gave us that information in the context of giving us that information has kind of spoken for us. That's very valuable. But still, we should not overemphasize that to the point of dismissing the good qualities we see in, in others that aren't in us to the extent that we can't learn from them. Other than, as I say, a kind of superficial idea of selflessness or, excuse me, selfishness that we see in our everyday lives, Bhagavad Gita says even, even the nicest people, as much as they miss, identify themselves with the body, they're involved in a form of selfishness, and it means exploitation. They're on the take. And that's kind of uh, unbecoming, to be a taker rather than a giver. But that's rather uh, our identification is for, is with material nature has forced us into that predicament because 
After all, the, this, the bodily sense of self that we identify with is not an enduring thing. But if that's our extent of our self-identification, then we've got a problem. And the problem mandates that we have got to take, some, we've got to add something, because it appears that in and of itself it's not going to endure. So if I add some pills or some makeup or health food or whatever it is, medicine, uh, uh, friends, money, all these are, in a sense, efforts to counteract the inevitable. The fact that I'm, we're all sitting on uh, death row, we're guilty. <laughs> we were in a cell and we've been sentenced. So we, we're busy uh, kind of struggling against, against the inevitable. It's very unbecoming and losing preposition. Forced by our identification with an empty bag, we are trying constantly to fill it up. Threatened by the possibility, the distinct possibility of extinction, <laughs> we're struggling to counteract that. This is, of course, Vedanta. Stripping it down to the bones is kind of scientific. It's rather disconcerting in many respects. It, 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 it is one side of Vedanta. Of course, we are bhakti Vedantins, so we have the other side to, to add to that beautiful side, the aesthetics, aesthetic side of Vedanta. And that, of course, we go to the other end of the spectrum, to selflessness in yoga, to arrive there. And we're attracted to that, and that's why we're involved in bhakti, primarily. The Vedanta side is also attractive to us. It appeals to our good sensibility, reasoning, and so forth. But more so because of the aesthetics, aesthetic side, we're attracted because of Krishna. Otherwise, we'd join some other organization that also speaks about Vedanta. We're attracted to Krishna, the charm, the beauty of Krishna. But we have to always stop and think that the beauty of Krishna, the art of Krishna Leela is printed, is painted on a canvas of Vedanta. It's not just a young boy dancing in the forest with young girls. And I can do that too, to put it in, in a crude way. That Krishna, that uh, cowherd, sweet, simple, charming, bedecked with the peacock, he carries a flute and a buffalo horn. He's decorated with uh, various colored clays from the soil of the sacred Vrindavan. So charming, so beautiful, carefree. He is Param Brahma, be all and end all of existence. But he's the heart of that. He's simply playing. And you know, when we talk to common people, they have a hard time thinking, this is God. This, this blue boy <laughs> herding mm -hmm. cows. Mm -hmm. So there's some Vedanta to that. What is that blue? Different ways to talk about that. Blue complexion, dark sham. Sham means in aesthetics and in Indian Ras Shastra, the secular theory of aesthetics, the drama, art, poetry, music, and so forth. And every emotion, of course, has a color, and the color of love is sham. So naturally, the heart of divinity, which is which is its love life, yes, reality has a love life also. It takes on that color. And if it was to make an appearance, what would be the shape? Uh, then we have to think. Adolescence, 
that is the, the when you the time when you first fall in love that is <laughs> you never forget that you may laugh about it now but still you never forget <laughs> that <laughs> oh and how painful it was <laughs> and comforting at the same time how disconcerting and, and comforting at the same time this is the nature you see of reality it's um, disconcerting it's as much as it's stabilizing it's it's uh, it's disconcerting it's full of uncertainty I mentioned spoke about this a little bit the other day we sometimes gravitate towards a religious institution or a secular institution for that matter that has rules and guidelines and so forth in order to get away from the uncertainty the ambiguity of life and let somebody else do the thinking for us it doesn't work like that. <laughs> hmm? Especially with regard to joining a spiritual institution. And much as that is our orientation to such a tradition, it is much as we are not involved there spiritually, even with all the trappings. A very important point. You see, if life, if reality is ultimately about love, if Godhead is ultimately about love, and and it is, then it has to be full of uncertainty and ambiguity. We have a desire due to our reasoning faculty, which is not our means of knowing. It may be helpful to a point for knowing, but certainly not in terms of comprehensive knowing. On account of being oppressed by our intellect and identifying with it, we're led to believe that by its exercise we may know. And therefore, in trying to know what life is like, having identified with the intellect, we insist that it makes sense. Life has to make sense. There has to be reasons for everything that makes sense. But what stares us in the face daily is the fact that life doesn't really make sense. In so many ways, we're trying to make sense out of it. But uh, in, in one sense, it doesn't. Love transcends reason. Love, it said in, in uh, poetry, knows no reason. Hmm? And love is, as much as it's about certainty, I found her, I found him, it's also about uncertainty. Does she still like me? Does he still love me? It's quite a, a roller coaster ride of ups and downs, full of union and separation, like the two banks of a river meeting and uh, separating, and while meeting, fear of separating, while separating, fear of we'll meet again, and, and so forth. So actually the, the fact of the matter is, as I say, life is about uncertainty, and it's, it is, it's, it's full of ambiguity, and the spiritual culture is about coming to grips with that, dealing with, rather than hiding away from that, and trying to make the dynamics of reality, that what is life, a sterile thing, a static thing. You see, this is the very degrading influence of mind and intellect. Because they are of a material quality, mind and intellect, when in touch with the spirituality, they try to bring it on their own level. So mind, intellect, the mental system, composed of different elements, when in touch with spirituality, will, if not harnessed and guided 
by spiritual guidance itself, will try to make the descent of divinity into the sphere of, into the realm of the mind in which we all live, if you will. Make it a member of that world when its appearance within that world is for the very purpose of taking us out of it. So, therefore, for good reason, there's some caution about intellect with regard to spiritual practice. It's such a fine line because at the same time I'm saying this, I'm also saying, if you're hearing me, you have to use your intellect, you have to use your discriminating power, you can't let somebody else just think for you, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, this is Krishna consciousness, these are all the answers, go tell it to everybody else. And we do have a, we do have a doctrine, we do have a philosophy, a theology, we should speak within the parameters of that and so forth, but in doing so, we should, we, we should know that it, that it is in itself is, is limited. It's not possible to articulate the fullness of the experience on the land of faith, of love, through the medium of mind, senses, words, intellect. And it's not only our limitation of speech. We think, if I knew the philosophy, I'd have more to say. Even if you know the whole philosophy inside out and backwards, it would be, it would be inadequate. It's an inadequate expression. The books, we so we put a lot of stress on the books, and they are important. I, I write some books, so I, you know, I'm the first to say that they're important. You should read them, <laughs> and so on. But the book is like table of contents only. These books to the book of life. It's, it's an outline to the book of life. And somewhere in the book is a page, and, and you're supposed to not only but your name is written there. It's written in the book, and then you have to fill out the rest, the whole story who I am, through the pen of spiritual practice. So this requires that we, at least a little bit, we know some Vedanta. If we were to write that story of bhakti, my life in devotion, my love life, hear the story of my love life, how I fell in love with Krishna. That story has to be written and we may know something about it now in a very basic sense, how I tried to overcome my love for things that were misidentified. They're also Krishna, Krishna's energy, but uh, we can write a little bit about that side. That's that struggle I had with my mind. I'm, I'm involved with my mind and senses, but there's a higher side to that. Enter into the actual love affair with the Absolute. But in order to write that beautiful story, how can you imagine? What a story. And from that vantage point, to speak of that story, nothing to hide. All the embarrassments of your life, all the things that you did wrong, all the things you wouldn't want anybody to hear about, no problem. They can hear about it. You can speak about it. What a strong position to be in. So it's, it's a position of love, but it's under, the underpinning is strength, is truth, Vedanta. So we have to be a little acquainted we all have different intellectual capacity, of course, but at least a little acquainted with the Vedanta side of the equation of Bhakti Vedanta. As again, as I said, that is the canvas from which the art of Krishna Leelas is drawn. So, some stress on that side. So we go to the far end, as I say, of self-selfishness, self-forgetfulness, outside of the context of yoga, and what it is, and what work we have to do to move away from what all of us have, not only us in the room, but as I say, everybody universally accepts. Selfishness is not a good idea. 
it's unbecoming. So if we understand the extent to which we're involved in it, implicated in it, then we know where we have to begin, to what extent we have to work to get away from this unbecoming kind of life based on self-forgetfulness. It's, it's an embarrassing situation. If you, just in the common language, if you forget yourself, he forgot himself. It's, you know, he, he lost it. <laughs> she lost it. It's not, it's not good. That's what we are doing. That's what we're involved in. Some people can see from that vantage point. It's, it, it can be amusing, and it can be, it can be disconcerting also at the same time. Sometimes you see the picture of Prabhupada looking at his book and laughing, some picture of the conditioned soul, the big smile on his face. So it's kind of funny in some, but it's, it's, a, it's sad too. Hmm? Therefore he was so busy at the same time to bring about an end to that, to try to bring about it, to be a, instrumental in bringing about an end to that. That is real kindness, real compassion. Compassion, we have to understand the, the full extent of compassion. So, to move away from this bodily identification, so where do we go from there? We want to end up on the other end of the spectrum, self-forgetfulness in yoga. Now we're self-forgetfulness outside of the context of yoga. So we, begin, we move from that kind of selfishness to self-sacrifice. From self-sacrifice to self-forgetfulness in yoga. Self-sacrifice is kind of the beginning of yoga. It's the embracing of the Dharma. That my life shall come under some, some regulation, some jurisdiction, some conformity with the um, order of things. I'm functioning presently somewhat out of order. There's a system. We see in our life there are so many systems. Systems in nature and systems within our body and so forth. So there's a whole organic system to life. We have to come in, in, in conformity with that. We come under the, willfully under the jurisdiction of that. What is our reluctance to do that based on? It's very interesting that the, our <laughs> reluctance to do that is based on our actual nature. In other words, to come under the jurisdiction of a governing power, of laws, of order, and so forth, goes against our, our nature, our ultimate nature, which is, a, which, which is free, spontaneous. Love, if we are a unit of love, a lover by nature, if this is our ultimate, has much to do with our ultimate sense of self, then love is spontaneous, free-flowing. It cannot be ruled or governed, and the extent that we, we seek to govern it and rule over it, it only causes it to flourish that much more. Just like if your son falls in love with a neighboring girl, but you think it's not a good idea, and you've got a lot of good reasons for that, and they all make sense, and you try to talk sense into your son, then you will only cause that uh, love to, to increase that much more. Anything that you try to put in the way of that will only inflame it. You see, bhakti is like this too. Is of the same nature in the fullest expression of self-forgetfulness in yoga is like this. 
in gopi's love for krishna that is self forgetfulness in yoga that is karma yoga the same name is given we're saying self forgetfulness in yoga self forgetfulness outside of yoga self forgetfulness outside of yoga that is calm calm means lust means i, I don't come under any jurisdiction i'm avoiding that Whatever I feel, I, I do. I go in that direction. And self-forgetfulness in yoga is called Kamanuga in the language of Rupa Goswami. Kamanuga. Following the way of calm. So there's a similarity, like I said, between the Avadut and the Bag Lady. And, uh, to use that example again, there's a similarity. But there's a big difference also. Their love is a haituki, apartheta. Nothing can check it. If anything tries to check it, Vedanta tries to check it. For example, if the gopis are told, that is, he is the Supreme Brahman. Mahaprabhu's father was told by the astrologer who did his chart and meditated on it, said, your son is Narayan. And you're trying to send him to school. <laughs> what did Jagannath Major say? He may be whatever he is, but he's my son and I've got to send him to school. He needs an education. Get him, could not check that only cause it to that sentiment to increase. Apatihata and Haitaki. Haitaki means no, no reason. And for it is Kamanuga. It is not even Sambandanuga. Sambandanuga means there's some justification for it within the context of Braj. Sambandanuga means friendly love of Krishna, parental love of Krishna, servitude, that kind of love of Krishna in Braj. There's a reason for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Within the society of Braj, there's some reason for it. You should love your friend. Okay. You should love your son. That's good. You should serve your master. But there's no place for gopis running off with Krishna in the dead of night. There's no legal sambandha there, relationship. It's illegal. The whole thing is illegal. And everybody's shh about it. Everybody knows it's going on, but everybody's more or less quiet about it, ignoring it, turning a blind eye. And even if the, 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 you know, the mother-in-law and the sister-in-law of uh, Radharani would find out, they'd turn a blind eye also. It has to go on, because it is so pure, so perfect. And all the opposition to that, you see, all the whole of the brudge, this is the point, the whole of the brudge is in opposition from a societal point of view to that kind of thing. But it's, it can't check it. It's going on. So because our destiny, our prospect in life, lies in such a plane of love, in the fullest extent of what Mahaprabhu came to teach, then we can say that our resistance to coming under dharma and rule is somewhat based on our real nature. But still we have to come under such rule to realize our nature in order to drive fast on the road without an accident, you, you have to have some sense of the rules of the road also. You have to wear your seat belt and these kind of things. So there's some necessity for us. There's a natural resistance and it's understandable, but we have to understand it properly. That is one reason for our resistance. And the other is, of course, our identification with sense objects and so forth that makes us attached to them. And to some extent, the Dharma, Yoga, is saying that that has to be tempered, that has to be regulated. If you're going to do, do like this. 
or do only only this time or this place or to this extent and and so forth. So we're resisting on two sides. One side because we sense the nature of reality is spontaneous and free, and we're right about that. The other side we res- we resist because we're attached to a false sense of freedom. We think that freedom lies in such interaction with sense objects. The prospect for happiness lies in that. When we're disappointed at every step, in every attempt to derive that sense of happiness, but mind leads us on. Just one more thing. <laughs> Just one more. One more child, one more wife, one more husband, one more partner, one more one new job, move to one other place, get one other thing. Do This mind is, is constantly waving a carrot in front of us. In Vedanta and Dharma, uh, the, the low side of, of Vedanta, and the, the religious side of the Vedas, they say that the general Dharma, you should read a, lead a religious life, you should restrict your interaction with the sense objects. And again, this is also a universally accepted principle. It's like take sex life, for example. Everyone has some attachment for sex life in this world, and everyone agrees that it has to be regulated on some level. Everyone agrees. Where you agree, that may be different. But everybody agrees on some level. On some level, everyone agrees. So we all agree. (laughs) The whole of humanity agrees that our interaction with sense objects has to be has to be some regulation, some restriction. It's not just a free-for-all. So we should come under some rule. We have senses. Our senses for perceiving, for example, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. And the scriptures, hidden scriptures, they teach us that, that our body is a microcosmic example of the macrocosmic universe. We talked the other day about the Susumna, Susumna, the luminous pathway to the sun and beyond, and how it's also present within the the body, how it's manifest also in the map, the esoteric map of Vrindavan as the Jamuna, and how you can float back to Godhead. That's real yoga. But ideas that that this body is like a microcosmic... uh, it's the microcosm of the macrocosm of the, of the universe. So we have senses, and in the cosmos there are, there are deities that preside over, over the senses. There's a relationship. Just like, for example, we cannot see independently without light. So there's a relationship between our eyes and the sun. And so with all of our senses, there's an aspect in nature that we're dependent upon, we have a relationship with. Without its influence, I cannot function in terms of my sense of self based around my senses. So acknowledge that. This is the beginning of dharma and regulation. Some acknowledgement. And so in the scripture there are different ways of acknowledging that. There are songs to sing, nice way. There are rituals to perform, rites and rituals, and sacrifices and so forth. And all these things. This isn't just some magic, hocus-pocus, or superstition at the bottom line. It deteriorates into that, no doubt. People don't understand the meaning behind it and so forth, and it becomes a superstition, and, they, and the next thing you know, they're making up a god or a goddess and, and a ritual for, for him or her and so forth. And, 
this can be a problem, but, but the, the, what the scriptures have talked about is something very practical. Just to give a practical example for us in our everyday life, we know living in a house like this, for example, that if we press a certain button, we get heat. If we turn a valve, we get water. We flick a switch, we get light. We open the mailbox, we get a bill for light, <laughs> for heat, for water. And we have to pay. We have to acknowledge that in, at, at City Hall or wherever it is, you know, that, that, that there's somebody on the other end. If you don't acknowledge them, then don't think you'll get light when you flick the switch or water when you turn the valve, heat when you press the button. So in a broader sense, um, as much as our capacity for seeing is dependent upon the sun, then we have some relationship with the sun of dependence in terms of our sensual sense of self, and we should, we should acknowledge that. This is a beginning idea of religion, acknowledging that there's some, some system. We're involved in it. So again, it's not just some kind of hocus-pocus idea. What we're to learn from this, when we give regard to the sun, for example, as we'll be taught in the scripture, we're to learn that the whole system, the way it works, is very simply, and this is again something universally that we all accept, that the way the world works is that by giving, you get. By sacrificing, you gain. And this is another reason why I say life doesn't make sense, because it's not reasonable on its face, it's not logical, that by giving away, you are going to get. But that's our mystical experience. In everyday life, what I'm telling you is that we are experiencing mystical things that transcend logic. But we, 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 because we're, we just, they are, we've accepted them, we don't think about it. We, we want everything to make sense. And, but I'm saying, to some extent, uh, that life doesn't really have to make sense. What I mean by that is it's mystical, it's beyond reason. It transcends reason. That's wonderful because a life ruled by reason is very, very boring. But like I say, if you just take the Vedanta side of the equation of Bhakti Vedanta, from our perspective, as high as you may go by that, it's very boring. Kaivalyam Narakayade, Vishwanath said things like that. Oh, simply to sit forever in the, in the Brahma Jyoti. Not a very stimulating affair. That's, of course, speaking from a very high vantage point, but our teachers come from that high vantage point. We have to speak then of an ordinary reason-ruled life, with reason that doesn't go as far, for example, as, as Vedanta to uncover the, uh, the, the, the full face of the, of the kind of universal realities that we all accept and their implications. So the mystery, the mystic truth of life, as I say, is that, for in a simple sense, is that by giving you get, that the, the, the world moves by giving, moves that mean goes forward, because the, the movement that we are involved in by taking is going backward. The karmic implication in karma means going backwards. The more we borrow money from the bank, the more we are in debt. It looks like I just got a lot of money. But, you know, you have to pay back, and it's compounded by interest, and so forth. So, our karmic involvement is in putting us into negative numbers. 
So that's not really movement. It's the, the real movement in terms of progress, which we are all interested in, of the world, is derived, going forward is derived from kind of going backward in a sense. By, by giving, we get. It's mystical. It doesn't really, it's not really logical. Hmm? But it's our mystical experience. Love is about giving, so when you give, in a simple sense of love, you get something. You can't hold it up and show it to anybody. Here it is. This is what I got out of this. I showed some love and I got this. You've got something. You can just show it by... (laughs) It shows itself. You feel full. You gave away of yourself. And you got full. You gained. You became whole. This is mystical. That is the nature of reality. So we're taught like this. Come under the rule of Dharma. Come under such jurisdiction. It's not just some dogma. Join a religion. and This kind of thing. No. Enter into the mystery of life. Acknowledge, as I'm saying, that there's a aspects of nature that my human experience is dependent upon. Acknowledging that is a sign of gratitude. So gratitude is a kind of a beginning sense of, of love. So as we move in this direction, which we can call self-sacrifice, what are we sacrificing? The false sense of self that causes us to forget ourself. The self-forgetfulness outside of the context of yoga, if you'll recall, it causes us to forget who we are and identify just with material objects as me or mine and be absorbed in them, lose sight of my real self. So as we sacrifice that, make the sacrifices that are required to move away from that false sense of self, that kind of self-sacrifice brings us into the proximity of the actual self that's whole, that's full. It's not possessed of a sense of incompleteness having identified with something that is incomplete. So up the ladder we go in terms of self-sacrifice from a religious context to a spiritual context in actual, for example, yogic discipline rather than uh, religious rituals. For example, to get a good wife or a good husband or a good son or daughter or whatever it may be. The sense that why should I spend a lot of energy making sure I get a good this or that. At some level we, we, we come to that sense and think there's something more valuable than material acquisition. So we are allowed some material acquisition uh, to the extent we are identified with material nature and to the extent we're involved in religious practice and so forth. But at a certain point, as I say, we, we, we move from religious orientation to life to a spiritual orientation to life and want to touch and touch the soul itself that's budding in the context of a religious orientation to life. It's starting to come out. I'm I'm feeling happier. Sense of happiness. I did the right thing. It might have been painful, but I did the right thing and I feel good for that. I feel good about myself. I don't have anything to hide. I have nothing in the closet. You see, you're becoming whole. You're becoming you're becoming full. And as you be, as you move in this direction of truth and and, and self contentment and so forth, then you become more interested in the self. 
and you find, oh, there are ways to experience that self in, in the full sense of the term. That not only am I a good person, a good human being, but I, I can understand theoretically, and it's appealing to me at this time, that I'm something more than that. I'm a soul, I'm a unit of consciousness. I mean, a good human being is good, but what can you do? Can you do all the things that you want to do? Human beings want to fly in the sky. They want to plumb the, the depths of the ocean. A thoughtful human being realizes such things are possible. Somebody's doing it, bird is flying. Fish is going to the bottom of the ocean. Why do we want to do that as human beings? Because in human life, the sense of the self is more developed. The spiritual self is more developed. And to the extent that we're actually human, which means, as I said, acknowledging universal truths, pursuing them to their limits, then we get a sense. Oh, that such things are possible for the soul. It can fly in the sky. It can, it can live under the water. It can do. So we think, what a what freedom lies there, far beyond the freedom. And there is a sense of freedom of, of being an honest person. You're free from the fear. Somebody might catch you. But there's a deeper sense of freedom, a higher sense of freedom. And we become interested in that, in pursuing that. So then there's all these yoga disciplines, direct yoga disciplines, for example. They are appealing to us. And in the context of yoga, of course, Krishna has taught that bhakti yoga is, is best, and for so many reasons. And in the context of that, there are different stages of yogic bhakti yoga application, which is relative to our development along the lines that we're talking about in the direction of, of selflessness. So bhakti yoga under guidance, rules and regulations, ritualistic bhakti yoga and so forth. Krishna speaks of this in the Gita, but ultimately he's, when he speaks Sarva Dharma and Prityaja, as we began, he's speaking about this kind of lawless love where from self sacrifice, we move to self-forgetfulness. This is the Vrindavan love and it reaches its fullest expression in the gopis' love for Krishna. This is what Krishna is talking about when he says Sarvadhaman Pratyajya. This is love in the full sense of the term and it is a self-forgetfulness because the devotees in that plane have so much identified with Krishna. It's like we've so much on the other end of the spectrum identified with material objects that we think they're us. They've identified with Krishna and they think, oh, just like Krishna is one of us. <laughs> like Krishna is my friend, Krishna is my lover. And this is a very high course ideal. And then we could go on about that to uh, some extent, but I've talked for some time now, so I think that we should pause with that. And, and uh, this is my basic general class overview. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. Oh, yes. It was so powerful and I, it was wonderful. <laughs> it seemed, it was so simple, <laughs> but it was so what I needed to hear. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Krishna consciousness is quite wonderful. simple. It's actually. So powerful. To, it gives me a lot of juice to keep and you contemplate that for a long time. <laughs> Krishna consciousness is, uh, is really common sense, but the problem is that common sense is uncommon. 
That's a very common sense thing. Uh, Shida Marsh once gave the example of uh, Alexander the Great. It was told that whoever could undo the, was it called the, the Gordian Knot, would conquer the world. So, so many great and powerful warriors came and they, they tried to untie that knot. They were unsuccessful. And Alexander came and just cut it with a sword. And they said, oh, I could have done that, but you didn't do that. <laughs> it was kind of a common sense. It is said that Columbus was challenged, uh, along with a number of people, that with the idea that whoever could balance an egg on its end would cross the ocean. People were trying, you know, not coming back. And so, so many people tried, and Columbus took it and just kind of like cracked it a little bit and then stood it up. <laughs> well, uh, everybody said, oh, anybody could have done that. But he did it all that. So, common sense is, is, is uncommon. Krishna consciousness is pretty simple. As I said, it's not really as much religious dogma as, as, as it is just playing out universal truths as far as they go. And it goes all the way to, to Vrindavan. I wish I could go on a little bit about that, but we'll, we'll continue tomorrow. Any other comments or questions? Yes? I thought in pursuit of spiritual life, there's some healthy aspect of self-analysis, maybe some self-criticism. And in the prayers of Acharyas, you'll see in high levels of spirituality, there'll be uh, what we call maybe extreme states of what would appear to be self um, deprecating themselves, but it's a very high thing. What would be helpful in finding, where's the fine line where s- that self-analyzing a critical eye can actually be harmful, you know, it can actually is not a positive or useful tool? Um, well, in the context of spiritual culture, uh, then things are fairly self-evident, so if one is preoccupied with that to the extent that they're discouraged about going on with spiritual practice, then it's an unhealthy application of that principle. The philosophical principle involved really is this, that the closer that the finite comes to the infinite, the more finite it, it, it feels itself to be. And so the, the, the closer we get to the absolute, the farther away we feel. The closer you get to the infinite, the more you know what is infinite, and, and you feel distanced from it. So sometimes, for example, Sridhar Maharaj used to say spirituality is measured in, uh, negatively. Those who say, I don't have, they have. Who says, I have? Who says he knows Brahman, doesn't know Brahman? Who says, I don't know Brahman, he knows Brahman. You know the story of Srimad Bhagavatam? Did I tell that story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Okay, I have to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> this man had sent his son to Benares to get an education. His son went and studied. Benares is a seat of learning. He came back to Vrindavan. His father said, so did you get an education? Yes. His father said, did you study Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, uh, I don't think we studied that book. But we studied a lot of books. He said, oh, well, you go back to Benares and study Srimad Bhagavatam if you want to be an educated person. So he went and he studied Srimad Bhagavatam. He came back. Father said, so did you study Srimad Bhagavatam? And he said, yes, and now I know why you sent me back. That book alone, just that one book, is more meaningful than all the books I studied. Now I've, I've got an education. So Father said, 
Well, good. So did you understand Srimad Bhagavatam? He says, yes, that's what I'm saying. I understood. And he said, then go back to Banaras and study Srimad Bhagavatam again. So again, he went back to him and he studied to Banaras. He studied Srimad Bhagavatam again. He returned. And Father says, so did you study Srimad Bhagavatam a second time? He said, yes, I know why you sent me back. Now I've understood Srimad Bhagavatam. Father said, go back to Banaras. <laughs> study Srimad Bhagavatam again. Again, he went. Third time he studied. Came back. Father said, so have you understood Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, I've not understood Srimad Bhagavatam. It's beyond really human comprehension, that book. Father said, now you understood Srimad Bhagavatam. <laughs> Such is the subject matter. So in a sense, the spirituality is, is measured in a negative way. So people who know feel like they don't know much about that. They're fully engaged in glorifying the experience, but oh, it's unknown and unknowable. Hmm? So one of my godbrothers once said to, said to Sri Dharmarsh when he was saying something along these lines, he said, Dharmarsh, what if you, you really don't know <laughs> and you, you really are not there? <laughs> and Sri Dharmarsh said, really you feel like that? Really? He was thinking that it was a good thing. Because the fact of the matter is, we may say that and we may laugh and say, yeah, that's my position, but we don't really think that we are really far away from that, because if we really thought like that, we would really be seriously involved in spiritual practice, if we really knew our predicament. So even when we say, I really, really am fallen, we really don't know <laughs> how fallen we are, or how, how, how needy we are uh, for, for good company and so forth. So. And we don't want this, this is not an artificial thing, this self-deprecation. We need to be introspective, self-analytical, and, and, and so forth, to a point, to the point that, it, that it, it calls our spiritual progress. It enables us to identify ourselves on the map, like you are here, as it says at the mall, and you know, where you want to go is over here. And then, if you've done that, then you feel enthusiastic to practice, because knowing where you are, you know where you have to go, and there's a path to get there, and that's that's helpful, that's useful. So we don't want it to be like a psychological dysfunctionality, and and we're just discouraged. Yes. So just an understanding, like you say, we're here, we want to get here, but as we advance, we no longer feel we're anywhere. We feel like we're nowhere because <laughs> so. Being able to well, there's nowhere to go also. <laughs> it's all right here. <laughs> but just, you know, in terms of being able to assess where you are in your spiritual life, that takes some... You have to be able to say, well, yeah, I've made a little advancement. You know, maybe I'm, mm-hmm. you know, at this stage of the bhakti path. And um, So how does that fit into feeling, you know... I mean, actually, when we get... When a person's really advanced and they're saying they no longer feel like they're anywhere on that. The nature of actually of spiritual progress is that as we progress we tend to what shortcomings we have are magnified. So while one person may find certain aspects of themselves to be very unbecoming or, or faulty to spiritually advanced, we won't we won't agree with them, but they actually feel like that. And so they all, well, you're a psychologist, you know, so there's something called selective filtering. You're probably familiar with the term. People tend to 
selectively filter compliments. You can hang on to those. And some people tend to selectively filter criticisms and hang on, on to those. So an advanced devotee is also doing kind of some selective filtering of, of sorts. And um, I think at a certain point of advancement, in, for example, in, in, in the higher stages, in, in bhava-bhakti, then uh, advanced devotees, they will um, think themselves more fallen than they actually are. Before that, we may be counting the steps on the ladder. I think I've gone, and we may be going also. I've gone to Nishta, I've gone to, to Ruchi, to As- Asakti. These are high stages also, of course. But for the most part, with regard to selective filtering, it's better, much better for us to develop a, in the spiritual context this kind of selective filtering of selecting out the criticisms and hanging on to those and, le- and letting the faults uh, pass over our head. Therefore, it said, who praises me is, is my enemy. If my tendency is just to, everyone who says something good about me, just to drink it and swallow it, that won't be very helpful for my spiritual progress. My head will spin. Then I won't be able to accurately access, assess where I am in the whole thing. A good book, of course, for this is the book by Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur called Madhurya Kadambini. You might want to read that book, and you'll be able to, with the honest uh, reading of that, you'll be able. To, and of course, if you don't have the problem of selective filtering in the in the wrong way, any of these things can be taken simplistically. And we can say, it looks like I'm about on that stage. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then I kind of filter out certain things that just you know, aren't quite part of my being yet. And I play those down. Those aren't as important. And, and yeah, I got that. That's part of me. I'm, I must be in that stage. This is, uh, this, we should be careful about that. Hopefully if we're not. Someone else will be friendly enough to tell us, you're kidding. You're <laughs> deceiving yourself. Read it again. <laughs> So, that's a good book, a very, very valuable contribution, based on two verses of Bhakti Samrita Sindhu. And if you like, sometime I'll give a, I gave a lecture series on that at one point, many years ago, but some of the tapes were lost, and I know more now, so I'd like to give it again. <laughs> that would be, would be nice. How many days will that take? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll probably take about a couple of weeks. Hey, next, next time. Visit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You gave uh, instruction about seeing the good qualities in, in others, and there's the uh, a verse in the Shrimad Bhagavatam that says actually people don't have any good qualities at all. They're not really devoted to the the absolute truth. They're not really devotees. Mm. And to have a universal vision that sees with a theistic generosity and to see those qualities in other people. How, how do we do that and reconcile those two things, honestly? And I think back to watching you indiscriminately distribute books very generously and how that you had to see within that person the potential or the good quality or the, or the soul in that. Actually, you know, we did that to some extent, it's true. Because 
least for me, mentally, beginning with that kind of service, I, I kind of thought certain people would be more interested in Krishna consciousness than others, or at least it would be easier for me to talk to them about it. Somebody who was my age and, uh, and uh, dressed as if they had some similar kind of, come from a similar background or something like that. But I remember at a certain point making, uh, consciously rejecting that and approaching businessmen and people in the military and all kind of things. Well, it's true to some extent, but... That verse, Yasyasti Bhakti Bhagavati Akintana Sarvair Gunais Tatra Samasati Sura Haruva Bhakta Sakto Mahatguna Manorite Nasati Dhavatuti But that verse is saying, Prahlad Maharaj quoted that verse, it says that Yasyasti Bhakti Bhagavati Akintana Sarvair Gunais Tatra Samasati Sura The devotee has all good qualities of the gods and goddesses has all, all the good qualities. And one who's not a devotee and lives in, lives in a world of his mind only, manoratana, the small world of the mind. We've talked about it before. With our senses, we contact sense objects. We get impressions that are related to the mind. The mind says, I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. That was happy. That was sad. And a world is created that we each live in of goods and bads and happies and sads. That's only relative to our minds reacting to sensual input. What may be good for you, may be bad for me, may be cold for you, may be hot for me. Which is it? Each of these determinations is relative to the, to the mind, mental, mental world. We talked about it last night to some extent, what a small world it is, how uncomfortable it is, even for ourselves, yet how we want everyone else to live inside of it, and how unreasonable that is. That world, the Bhagavatam says, in that world there are no good qualities. So it's basically, it's not really saying, here's the devotees over here, and here are the people who are the bad guys, here are the white hats, here are the black hats, and these good guys and devotees and gals, they got everything going for them, and the, the non-devotees don't. But to, you see, to the extent that we live in the world of the mind, to that extent we're not a devotee, <laughs> we don't have good qualities. So the verse is extolling the virtues of bhakti and coming outside of the small world of the mind, which is, the, which is again, the world of self-forgetfulness outside of the context of yoga. You can't really have any good qualities comparatively. You may have, like, a semblance of good quality, like honesty amongst thieves. There's some honesty there, but it's not the full <laughs> measure of the, of the term. Does that help? Otherwise, of course, beyond that, too, we are to try to imbibe the vision of great devotees and how great devotees see, we said they see themselves as, as rather insignificant and fallen, but they see everyone else as rather significant and valuable the other end of the spectrum, the beginning devotee, there's a tendency sometimes to see, what does Vishwanath call it? Hmm? Utsahamai in Madhurya Kadambini, that book we've mentioned. Utsahamai. He's very enthusiastic and he thinks he knows a lot very quickly. Maybe he's got some, he knows a few verses or a bunch of verses, a lot of verses, and he can pull them out and maybe even practices collecting information and scriptural verses, not to change his or her life, but, but to be able to speak them out 
and then get a false sense of of being. He's kind of a wannabe, uh, but he's not. <laughs> so Utsamayi, we are all troubled by this, perhaps to some extent. We really have gone nowhere, but we we, we think we used to call it in this song the pure devotee disease when it was like acutely manifesting in in, in someone. Such a person, while thinking themselves to be very advanced, thinks that nobody else is advanced. Those who aren't devotees, they're all demons. And amongst the devotees, none of them are practically worth associating with. So this is the one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum, the actual advanced devotee is thinking just the opposite. Everyone is advanced. Only I'm fallen. Did you ever think like that, that people are all enlightened? People are all enlightened, and only you, you know, like that. yeah, that everyone's enlightened, but you're not, and so everyone is teaching you something. Sometimes you can slip into that. It's, this is the theory that even animals, they're all everyone knows, but in, but they're not telling you. <laughs> so you have to become humble. That you can hear, you can understand what the moo, what it means, and the chirping of the birds and so forth. Something like that. So that we have to try to think theoretically. This is this is this is the highest uh, vision, and we can't artificially assume that. But theoretically, anyway, we try to think, uh, give respect to others, and, and so forth. Two things Thakur Bhaktivinod says is the essence of Dharma. Who knows what they are? Jivedai Krishna Nam Sarva Dharma Sarva Dharma. Essence of all Dharma is Jivedai Krishna Nam. Chant Krishna Nam and to be kind to other jivas, other soul, other people, other souls. To show kindness to other jivas and to take Krishna Nam, chant Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna. This is the essence of Dharma. Those things go hand in hand. So maybe we can stop there and. Okay. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Puri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Jai Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai, Jai Bhakti Rakshakshida Jai Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Jai Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai, Jai Bhakti Vinod Parivar ki jai, 